This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 314th episode, we have a bunch of news, including two new sauropods, and one of them is a little cutie. Nice. They're all cute. We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Arkansaurus, and in an unusual turn of events, we have an interview with Why Dinosaurs, but it's actually them interviewing us for the most part, so it will be edited down a little bit from what the full version is. It's already up on our YouTube page if you want to see the full version, but we paired out some of the less dinosaur-y stuff. And then we also asked them some questions too, and they elaborated on some of the dinosaur stuff that they've seen around that wasn't in our first interview with Why Dinosaurs. So we figured we'd throw it up here. Yeah, we had a great time talking to them and I'm really looking forward to the documentary coming out. Yes. So some very small snippet of this interview will hopefully make it into their documentary titled Why Dinosaurs. But before we get into all that, we'd like to thank some of our patrons for continuing their support of our show and keeping all the bits streaming. This week, we have a brand new patron who's getting a shout out, and that's Mycoraptor, which I think is a fantastic name, obviously combining Microraptor with Mike. So you get Mycoraptor. I just love it. I like the way that sounds. And then rounding out our shout outs for the week, we've got Kaylin, the Georges family, Ricky, Albertosaurus, Sorian Brandy, Jared Copeland, Scotty, Wurgersaurus, and Wouter. Yeah, thank you everybody so much for your support. As you know, that's how we keep this show going. We really appreciate it and all that you do and being part of our community. And if you want to join that community, then check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. We've got tons of rewards. So jumping into the news, we have two sauropods to talk about. Yes. Originally, I thought this was going to be one sauropod in the paper. And then surprise. Yeah, there are two. Well, I mean, mean, from the title, I could tell there were two, but I thought one of them was already named. Mm. But actually, two brand new dinosaurs. What a good week. The paper was written by E. Martin Heckenleitner and others and published in Communications Biology, which means it's open access. So anybody can see the sauropods in all their glory. Good. Like I said, there are two of them, two new ones. They're both titanosaurs from Argentina, and they're in the La Rioja province, which is north of Patagonia, where many of the titanosaurs are found. That's usually where we're talking about titanosaurs. But we have talked about La Rioja quite a bit before because there are a lot of fossils and dinosaur fossils known from there, but they're usually from the Triassic, and a lot of them are theropods and other things. Obviously, in the Triassic, we didn't have huge true sauropods, let alone titanosaurs, so this is pretty unique, and it helps fill in some gaps because we don't usually talk about it, but the Cretaceous of South America was also very flooded, just like North America was with the Western Interior Seaway, which means lots of the dinosaur groups probably got isolated and were evolving in different ways. There could be some complicated relationships going on. And some weird-looking dinosaurs. Yeah, that always seems to happen (laughs) when you have isolated groups. The group that these two titanosaurs are in is called Rinconsauria, but unlike Rinconsaurus, both of them are depicted in more of a horizontal posture. The little bit of art I saw of Rinconsaurus has a more like Brachiosaurus upright sort of posture to it. So I'm not sure if they think it's different or maybe it's just that these scientists like to present all of the members of that group in a more horizontal posture. I'm not sure. But to that end, the front limbs are shorter than the hind limbs, which would you would assume might give it a little bit more of a horizontal posture, whereas Brachiosaurus has like famously huge front limbs, which even in the most 
horizontal posture you could come up with still has a little bit of an incline to its back. So it's going to be a little bit higher off the ground no matter how you reconstruct it compared to something like these two. The last little detail, just as an overview of what these dinosaurs look like, is they have long whip-like tails, sort of Diplodocus-like, but I think there's a lot of conjecture there because we don't have the ends of the tail at all. So it's sort of just projecting out what the end of the tail might have been like. Just based on close relatives. Yeah, I think so. The two dinosaurs are named Punatitan and Bravasaurus. The full name of Punatitan is Punatitan Coughlinai, and Punatitan comes from Puna, which is the local word for the, quote, oxygen-depleted atmosphere typical of the high Andes. So, mm. yeah, if you're there and struggling to breathe, I guess they use the word Puna for that. And then Titan, because, you know, Titanosaur, so Puna Titan. And then Coughlinai is after Tim Coughlin. Not about the fact that you might cough up there. <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty clever. But apparently it's after Tim Coughlin and not coughing. And Tim Coughlin reported the first dinosaurs from the area, so he gets the name. Cool. I like the idea of it being after coughing. That's pretty funny. <laughs> Bravasaurus has the full name Bravasaurus arierosaurum. And Bravasaurus is after the local lake and park both named after Laguna Brava. So where it was found, yeah. Yeah. And then Arieros is the Spanish name for muleteers. It's mm. apparently the English word. I didn't, I've never heard this English word before, but it means a group of people that use pack animals to sort of travel. So if you load up a mule or you load up some cattle with a whole bunch of gear and then you go for a long trek with them, sort of pulling it behind you, you're a muleteer, or in Spanish, you're an arriero. And there should be a rolling R in there, but I'm not capable of that. So I'm sorry if you speak Spanish and that hurt your ears. But the reason that they chose to name it Arierosaurum after the arieros is because there was a group of people who used pack animals to cross the Andes during the 19th century, I assume in this area, and they decided to honor them by naming it. Puna Titan is the larger of the two sauropods. It's roughly 14 meters or 46 feet long and 4 meters or 13 feet tall in a sort of horizontal posture. And they classify that as medium-sized, although I think that's pretty small for a titanosaur. I guess, but if you think about when it lived... I mean, this is in the Cretaceous, so Patagotitan wasn't... Or maybe I'm thinking about where it lived because we're talking about there's, it's probably one of these isolated dinosaur groups, right? Yeah, but they did say that even though it was isolated, it was likely sort of a large land space. So it's sort of like being isolated in Montana. Oh, okay. You're isolated from the eastern part of the U.S., but you still might have plenty of resources. Right. You wouldn't shrink down because you feel like you're living on an island. Yeah, presumably. Although... Bravosaurus was only 7 meters or 23 feet long and only about 2 meters or 6 feet tall with that same horizontal posture, which they classify as small-sized, and they estimate it at about 3 tons, which is very small mm -hmm. for a sauropod. They point out that under, anything under 10 tons is pretty rare, so being 3 tons is quite small. I mean, it's basically face-to-face -face with a human yeah. at 6 feet tall in that horizontal posture. Obviously, if it could crane its neck up, you know, who knows? Maybe it might be 12, 15 feet tall. Sure. But in a typical posture, it's basically face-to-face -face with a person, which is not what you think of when you think of sauropods. Oh, that would be so great, though. It'd be creepy. I don't want to be face-to-face -face with any animals. No, why not? Because, <laughs> I don't know, they're intimidating. Mm. I don't want to be, like, animals meeting my eye line. That's mm. freaky. I'd be fine with meeting eye to eye with a sauropod. I suppose. They're maybe not intimidating. Unless you startle them because you're at their face level and they don't like it. Just be holding food. <laughs> like All will be well. Branches of leaves. Mm -hmm. What happens when you run out of leaves, though? Well, by then you've gained their trust. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> and you've kept eye contact long enough. So you like pet it or something while you're feeding it? Yeah. I see. It knows you can be a friend. You've got it all figured out for mm. when the dinosaurs come back. <laughs> <laughs> Even though Bravosaurus is only about three tons, it's not the smallest titanosaur or sauropod, I should say. Magyarosaurus is only about 750 kilograms. Right, but that one was an island dwarf. Yes, but in terms of Bravosaurus, a quarter of the size, basically. Mm -hmm. But yeah, since it was an island dwarf, 
it's got a better excuse, I guess. <laughs> excuse. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas Bravosaurus probably had more land area. So it seems a bit stranger that Bravosaurus is so small. And even stranger still is that they're pretty confident that Bravosaurus was probably an adult because they have a good set of pretty well-preserved vertebrae and they seem to be fused, meaning the neural arches and the centrum and all that are fused together, which is traditionally seen as an indicator that the animal is skeletally pretty mature. Mm. So that's probably the case with Bravosaurus. So 23 feet long and six feet tall is maybe as big as it got. It's probably filling some ecological niche. Yeah, yeah, one would presume. Although we always think about that long neck being advantageous because then you can sweep back and forth. You don't have to walk around as much. So what the advantages of being a small sauropod? I don't know. It seems weird. I guess it's possible that maybe it evolved as an island dwarf somewhere else. Yeah, made its way over. Yeah. Who knows? Kind of reminds me of Ducky from Land Before Time where she's stretching out her neck, trying to be a long neck. <laughs> Of course, Ducky's a hadrosaur, so... Everything comes back to lay before time for you. <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> In terms of what they found, they found quite a bit more of Bravosaurus than Punatitan. So with Bravosaurus, they found actually a couple bones from the skull, which is really cool. I think mm -hmm. it was the quadrate and maybe the quadratojugal type area. So in the back, sort of middle, not anything around the eyes or the nose and nothing in the jaw either. But still better than nothing, better than what we usually find with Titanosaurus. They also found many of the front leg and foot bones, as well as most of the hind leg bones and most of the hips. And in terms of vertebrae, I said there were some good preserved ones. There was a series of vertebrae in the neck, including the cervical ribs that sort of run parallel to the vertebrae to sort of strengthen it. Mm -hmm. And a series of vertebrae in the back as well as a few vertebrae in the tail. So pretty good sampling of vertebrae from around. And they were relatively complete too, which is really nice. Mm -hmm. They also found some ribs and a potential paratype, meaning another individual where they referred some material. I guess it maybe could be the same individual too, because it includes a tooth, some more limb bones, and some ribs. So pretty good. Yeah. Puna Titan, on the other hand, they found a lot less of. This is the bigger one. But the best thing that they found was a good series of 13 vertebrae all in a row from the tail. Ooh. So it gives, like I said, it wasn't near the end of the tail. It's sort of middle to near the base of the tail, which actually might be more useful, frankly, for mm. determining characteristics of like pneumaticity and sort of like how the tail interacted with the rest of the body. But it still is a little bit hard to say how long the tail was when you only have 13 of the vertebrae. They also found three vertebrae from the sacrum. I think they're all from the sacrum. One of them might technically be in the back. So that's the spot right in between the hips, which can be really important and useful, as well as a pair of back vertebrae with their associated ribs, because just like with us, where our ribs pretty much connect to our back in a weird way, that's kind of awkward to think about. Uh, <laughs> sauropods have the same kind of thing going on. And they also found one partial neck vertebra. And the only thing they found in the whole skeleton that wasn't a vertebra was a few partial hip bones. Hmm. So not nearly as useful. But vertebrae can sometimes be pretty helpful with sauropods because we were talking about like that uh, opisthocelus and all the different like which part of it is convex versus concave, how they interlock. Yep. And then all the different intricacies of on the arches and the different pieces, the zygopophyses that stick off the vertebrae can tell you a lot of information taxonomically about sauropods. So even though it's not very exciting to a dinosaur enthusiast to say like, it's just a few vertebrae, we want to see a skull or we want to see like some big claws or something, mm. it still can be pretty useful in classifying it. I'd argue it's still exciting because now we know about this new sauropod. Yes, that's true. And we can tell that it also was probably an adult, which helps you to know that what size some of these individuals were getting to. Mm -hmm. Phylogenetically, both of them are very derived within Colossoria. And the way that these authors do their phylogeny, that's a sister taxa to Saltosauridae. We talk about Saltosaurids a lot. They're the sauropods that had like potentially osteoderms on them. Mm -hmm. And they're cool. pretty cool. Yeah, I like them a lot. But sometimes people will classify basically like all of these derived titanosaurs as saltosaurids. So I'm not sure who would agree with this 
Colossoria and like exactly how it plays out overall. And then if you step down the family tree, you get onto Rinconsoria and then finally Eolosaurs, mm. which is the group that they ultimately put these two individuals in. And that includes Gondwana Titan, which is another seven meter titanosaur, another little tiny one. Oh. <laughs> so as expected for some late Cretaceous titanosaurs, they're either in Saltasauridae or they're in Colossoria, but like very derived. Mm -hmm. Either way though, no matter how you classify them, Punatitan and Bravosaurus appear to be pretty distant relatives of Saltasaurus, despite being physically close and pretty close in time. So this is another one of these weird situations where the dinosaurs that were coexisting really close to each other mm -hmm. were more related to stuff that's farther away and maybe in different time periods. So maybe they were relatively new to the area. Yeah, exactly. Somebody had to move and who moved from where and what combination. It might also help with them filling different niches mm -hmm. because if they're really close relatives, maybe they wouldn't have diversified as much, might be eating similar foods and mm -hmm. things like that. What were you doing, small sauropods? <laughs> Indeed. Speaking of small sauropods, they also found a ton of titanosaur eggs nice. in the area. Embryos too? I don't think they found any embryos, unfortunately. The area is referred to as the QSD nesting site, which has been published on before, partly by this lead author, so he's well acquainted with it. But I don't think we've mentioned it before, because we're usually talking about eggs from farther south in Argentina. These nesting sites are spread across three kilometers of range and wow. are in three different layers. So yeah, it's a very large nesting site. They say it's one of the largest nesting sites ever found anywhere in the world, period, mm -hmm. let alone for titanosaurs or whatever other group you want to classify these in. Three different layers too. That means they were doing that for many years. Yeah, exactly. So it might indicate that the dinosaurs came back each year to nest in sort of a bird-like behavior, one might say. Hmm. And so far, they've found at least 19 clutches. One of them has 15 eggs, and the eggs are nearly spherical, which is what we think titanosaurs laid eggs. You know, we thought they had nearly spherical eggs. Mm -hmm. So they're probably titanosaur eggs from our best guess. Maybe they're from Puna Titan or Bravosaurus, or maybe both. The eggs are also pretty similar to other late Cretaceous titanosaur eggs. Specifically, mostly the ones I'm talking about are in Aka Mahuevo, which is south. I think we recently talked about a couple of eggs that were returned that they thought were smuggled from there. Hmm. I'm pretty sure that was Aka Mahuevo. But the ones that were found in QSD, this new nesting site or newer nesting site, are about 13 to 14 centimeters or five to five and a half inches in diameter, which gives them a volume of about 1.5 liters. Wow. And that's actually pretty similar to an ostrich egg, if not just a little bit smaller than an ostrich egg. Mm -hmm. Ostriches have crazy huge eggs, mm -hmm. especially for animals of their size. <laughs> yeah, if you think about a titanosaur egg and you know that titanosaurs get way bigger than ostriches, but their eggs are smaller, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it is pretty crazy. And then if you... So you can find even weirder ones like kiwis. Mm -hmm. I think that was my fun fact one time where the when they have the egg inside their body, it fills like two-thirds of their body space. Mm -hmm. How do they even get around? <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous. But also, no wonder they can't fly. True, yeah. And these eggs, too, are a little bit smaller than the ones in Acamahuevo and La Rioja, which are two other famous Patagonian sites. The eggs appear to have been laid in a floodplain, and that's probably the way that they were buried as well. Although they do appear to have been buried by the parents first, so it's not like they were buried while they were sitting out in the open. We've talked before about how we think sauropods use their back claws probably to dig holes, and then they would lay their eggs in the hole and then maybe shove some compost down there. Keep them warm. Exactly, and moist, and then bury them once they're down in a pit because obviously sauropods cannot sit on their eggs to incubate them, so they would have to come up with some other way to make sure their eggs are in good conditions. And the easiest way to do that, apparently, is to bury them with some garbage that's going to decompose. Garbage. <laughs> but I don't. Th it depends on like what the exact features of the area are. So if you're in like a loose, sandy place that's really dry and really cold, you're going to want to try to have something incubating with them to add the moisture and add the warmth. But if you're in something that's a more moist dirt and it's near something that's like a, a hot spring or something that's keeping the ground really warm, you might not have to bury 
anything with it. You might just be able to rely on the moisture and the temperature of the land and just bury them as is. You see that with modern birds too, depending on what environment they are and they use different things to build their nests even. Yep. And there are like mound turkeys, I think they're called. Mm. These mound birds that still bury their eggs. Mm -hmm. And that's partly how we have a good analog to these dinosaurs because we can compare a modern bird that buries its egg to a modern bird that doesn't. And then you can look at the shells and see like, oh, the pores are different on the one that's buried. So when we look at these, we, th we see like, oh yeah, this looks like one of those burying eggs. <laughs> it's pretty convenient that there are over 10,000 species of birds today. That mm -hmm. I should say 10,000 species of dinosaurs that we can relate to their ancestors. But hopefully we'll find more. I'm, I'm still holding out hope that they find some embryos. They didn't mention it in this paper, but a lot of times that happens where they talk about a new exciting find and they leave out some details for a future paper. So hopefully there's a paper waiting in the wings about these new embryos that they found. But even if they haven't found them yet, there were tons of eggshells all over the place in this three kilometer area, as well as lots of more complete eggs. So there's a good chance that someone can find them in the future. Sounds like there's a lot to study. Speaking of dinosaurs and nesting, so National Geographic has this new AR experience. It's a filter on Instagram, and you can bring three of the dinosaurs from their Reimagining Dinosaurs issue kind of to life, and one of them is Deinonychus tending to its eggs. There's our connection there. But there's also E, Ichi, which it looks like it's kind of getting ready to glide. And then you've got Spinosaurus, which is swimming underwater. So that filter, actually, your whole screen turns blue like you're underwater with it. And it's really fun. We had some fun at uh, Thanksgiving in the U.S. taking some videos of these dinosaurs around our turkey carcass. <laughs> yeah. After all the meat had been stripped off it. Yeah. Pretending basically like, because those are all carnivorous dinosaurs. A, a little unclear on E what it ate, but for sure Deinonychus and Spinosaurus ate meat. Mm -hmm. So we can pretend like they helped us finish off this other dinosaur we yep. were eating. Dinosaurs eating dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. As they do. <laughs> they do, yeah. <laughs> and what's fun, too, is you can also flip it around. So it's like flipping the camera to the selfie camera, basically. Yes. And then you can have it look like it's talking or singing and dancing, which we also made a video of. Because it, it fully mimics you like it's a mirror, but mm -hmm. you're a dinosaur in the mirror, right? Yes. Although I had some <laughs> trouble getting its hands to move. Maybe someone more skilled than me can do that. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. That's cool. Yeah, and they look really cool. Yeah, and they had like little snippets of audio that went with them too to teach people about dinosaurs. And mm -hmm. since it was National Geographic, it was like good up-to-date information. So that was nice. Yeah, yeah, right from their issue. So yeah, really fun filter. If you're on Instagram, I recommend checking it out. And then last, we've got the dinosaur ride at Disney's Animal Kingdom. It recently broke down, so people got to have this behind-the-scenes view with the lights on, and apparently there's an extra Carnotaurus head that's near the end of the ride, and it's hidden in the dark when it is dark, when the lights are out, and it's an extra part in case there's a malfunction with one of the main animatronics, which makes sense. I feel like there's probably a lot of those, but they're probably not on display mm -hmm. enough that you'd see it with the lights on, like in some storeroom. They're kind of hidden, yeah. Yeah. But... Also, what's interesting is the ride apparently isn't as decorated as other rides with foliage and rocks. There's a lot of blank walls, but when you're in the dark and your focus is on the dinosaurs, that's all you notice, mm. the dinosaurs. They didn't bother painting the things that were in pitch black, in other words? I think so. It was hard to tell from the pictures. So according to Reddit, the ride was rebooted just 10 minutes later, and then people got to finish. And it looks like everyone on the ride and everyone working on the ride was wearing masks. It's good. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. 
And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now we're going to go on to our interview with Why Dinosaurs. But again, it's kind of an unusual interview because they are for the most part, interviewing us, although they do share quite a bit of information about themselves too, which is why we're popping it in here. Yeah, yeah, they've got a great story. Again, this is the father and son team making the documentary. And if you're interested in seeing the video version, because they made it for us and they are fantastic at editing video. So if you want to see like a lot of the things that we're talking about in this audio, you can see it in the YouTube video. So that's on our YouTube channel, which I think the easiest way to get there is to go to youtube.com and search for I Know Dino without spaces and we'll pop up or you can get there through our website too on inodino.com. You can also just go to YouTube. If you go youtube.com slash C, the letter C, slash I Know Dino, that'll take you to our channel. <laughs> I had no idea. I've been using the like crazy long alphanumeric this whole time oh. that comes with it. I guess we know who set up this channel. Yeah. (laughs) It's a hot tip. Hey, Garrett and Sabrina. Thanks for uh, for joining us on this video. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. And you guys are connected somehow. (laughs) And we're married. We had a dinosaur-themed wedding, and then we sort of ran with that and turned our passion into a podcast. Tell us about that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We got married at the Santa Barbara Zoo, because we met in Santa Barbara. And the year we got married was the first year that they had Duncan the Dinosaur. And it's a man in a T-Rex costume with an animatronic head who is meant to be there to uh, teach children. But they knew we loved dinosaurs so much and we were doing other dinosaur decorations, like the centerpieces and cake topper and things like that. And so they offered to have Duncan at our wedding. And we said, of course. And Duncan was great. I'd say all the adults loved Duncan, but all the children, maybe 10 and under, cried when they saw Duncan. <laughs> scary. It's scary seeing a full-sized dinosaur coming well, the, at you. The face is pretty realistic. It turns out they had to do some work on Duncan to make him look like he was smiling more because he was too scary. Less terrifying. So even though on that particular dinosaur uh, costume, the legs are sticking out, kids just sort of see right past that you think they just see the face i think well when he's when duncan is interacting with you there's a camera in his in his face so the puppeteer is pretty far away like the legs are five six feet away it's this big teethy mouth (laughs) that's right at you so i think that's why it's terrifying yeah so they kind of block your view from seeing the legs and other stuff happening because you just have this thing up in your face yeah It's great. (laughs) Yeah. How did you two first uh, meet? In a very Santa Barbara way. (laughs) It was at a party on DP. And if you went to Santa Barbara, you know that stands for Del Playa. Del Playa. (laughs) In Isla Vista. Yep, Ivy. And uh, I was living on DP, and that's kind of the unwritten rule is 
you have a lot of parties at your apartment. And so we had a highlighter party where we changed all of the lights to uh, black light bulbs and then told everyone, wear a white t-shirt, and then we passed out highlighters and everybody took turns drawing on each other. So when I met Sabrina, she had highlighter glasses drawn on her face. Yep. And I don't know what kind of craziness on her shirt and what kind of craziness was on my shirt. But. I don't remember. <laughs> it actually had nothing to do with dinosaurs. I don't think we talked about dinosaurs until maybe three years into dating. Yeah. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. We moved to New Jersey for, she was going to NYU and I was working in New Jersey. At, I was doing chemical engineering stuff. And we went to the American Museum of Natural History because of course you do if you live within, I don't know, a four hour drive of it. Yeah, anytime anyone visited us, we'd be like, let's take you to the Museum of Natural History. Yeah, and I think the first time we went there, we had a conversation that was something like, I love dinosaurs. And the other person was like, I love dinosaurs too. Like, really? <laughs> How has this not come up? Three years. <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah, took a while. <laughs> so how did it transition from that to yeah. yeah, I'd say yeah. it started with, um, we both loved dinosaurs as kids, Land Before Time, Jurassic Park, all of that. And then just sort of, I don't know, forgot about it for a little while, or maybe we're embarrassed as teenagers or, or something like that. And then, yeah. but being able to rekindle this fascination and passion, uh, we, we just decided to go for it. And so Garrett started a, we started with a website where Garrett, wanted to map out all of the natural history, specifically dinosaur-focused museums around the world, and then with the goal of, well, maybe we'll get to most of them, or at least some of them. Yeah, some of them were kind of hard to find, so, and we love dinosaur museums. I mean, that was the thing. Yeah. <laughs> we connected over the American Museum of Natural History, and yeah, so we had that website, and that's when the name I Know Dino came up, because that domain was available and related to dinosaurs. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and then what, how many years later? Then we got married a year later, and then a few months after getting married, so January 2015, we started the podcast because at the time, Garrett had recently gotten into podcasts, so he was really familiar with the format, and that's when we realized that there was this gap. There were some really great paleontology podcasts out there, but nothing that focused specifically on dinosaurs. Nobody was keeping up with all the discoveries that I wanted to hear about. So. Right, well, we, so we learned that there was something new being discovered and written about almost every week, which was amazing. <laughs> it's a lot. In yeah. the beginning, we used to worry, what if there isn't enough to talk about in this episode? And now that is not a concern. It's always like, what do we cut? <laughs> we don't have time for every story. What do we that sounds, focus on? That sounds familiar. So 300 episodes, that's roughly 300 hours of content that you put out? Yeah, mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the right ballpark. Wow. <laughs> there are some episodes like Sabrina Ricci's Hardcore Bone Wars, which is two hours and 38 minutes, I think. I think that's yeah. our longest episode. Some topics are too big to cover in just one hour, it turns out. Yeah. Have you guys had like a lot of like fan response or sort of what has that interaction been like? Yeah. Yeah. It's been very good. <laughs> it's one of the things that I think keeps us going because this, I mean, you know, from doing the documentary, it's a lot of work. And sometimes you just feel like, oh, this week there's so much going on, I just want to take a break. And then we'll get a nice note or email or sometimes video messages even from people who are like, wow, we really love listening to your podcast or uh, you help me get through my day or, or something like that. In one case, actually, um, somebody said they changed their major to paleontology after listening to us for a few episodes, which was amazing to hear. Has anybody ever interviewed you? Yeah, we've done a couple crossover is the, is the main way it happens. A few mm -hmm. paleontology-themed podcasts. Okay. Yeah, but cool. it does, does feel, uh, it's very different to be on the other side. It's a lot easier. <laughs> I like it. Oh, really? I, <laughs> I find the other way easier. <laughs> I do, too. Yeah, I would rather be standing behind a camera and filming and letting James ask all the questions he's ever wanted to ask these paleontologists, you know? So. <laughs> I can talk weird. nonstop. It's not a problem for me to just answer questions indefinitely. All right. All right. We'll give them some more. So can you give us sort of a, a highlight reel, you know, out of all of the, the guests that you've interviewed, of like a couple of, of your favorite ones over the years? 
So for me, it's always the most recent ones are my favorite because it kind of builds over time. You know, it's like science, right? So over time you learn, oh, there's this theory out there. Like one of my favorites was with Alvarosaurids and their little crazy short arms with the claws on them. And like, what are they using those claws for? So I used to ask different paleontologists the answer to this until you eventually get to a sort of consensus. Because one of, the, one of my favorite theories was, well, they're using these claws to chest bump into eggs and break them open and then they're like egg specialists and that was it that was a whole there was a whole paper that was a lot about that so i would ask different people who've worked with alvarosaurids you know what do you think of this hypothesis and most of them would answer i'm pretty sure that they're for breaking open termite mounts (laughs) so (laughs) now that's what we go with or like with spinosaurus too that's changed a lot over time t-rex you hear the differences between feathers and lips and all that stuff. So it's always, it builds. So my favorite is usually the most recent one we've done is, and at this point it's Spinosaurus that's the most recent. There's also been people who are just really excited to be talking about their work. Mm-hmm. And then that, I and mean, it's contagious. It fires us up too. Especially when it's an oddball topic, like something you don't hear about that much in the mainstream, like Karen Chin with coprolite or mm. coprolite. It's like not a lot of people talking about fossilized dinosaur poop, but there's so much information there. So when you get the first person who's like a real expert on it, explaining it to you, that's that's awesome. Mm -hmm. How about you, Sabrina? Do you have any favorite episodes, favorite guests? Well, I have a favorite dinosaur, which is Brontosaurus, and that got brought back in 2015. And we interviewed Emmanuel Shop for the episode. It was episode 100. And it worked out really well. And now every time I see him at SVP, I tell him, oh, thank you so much. You're my favorite for bringing Brontosaurus back. <laughs> awesome. Since you mentioned Brontosaurus, I should give a shout out to Victoria Arbor because she is the ankylosaur expert and named Zool along with David Evans and lots of other really amazing ankylosaurs and has done tons of great work on them. So since ankylosaurs are my favorite group of dinosaurs, yeah. Every time we talk to Victoria Arbor, I'm pretty pumped. <laughs> when I saw the Notosaur at the Tyrol, mm-hmm. wow. Like that, that changed. That's my favorite fossil, my favorite dinosaur at this point, you know? Like that's really something special. So it's neat. You're just talking to different people, and, and everybody's got a different, you know, favorite for one reason or another. Yeah. That Notosaur is amazing. My favorite was Ankylosaurus for the longest time because it was like the biggest ankylosaur was the latest in the Cretaceous. So it had a big tail club and all the body armor more so than some of the earlier ankylosaurs. But then they found Zool and that notosaur you're talking about, which is uh, Borealopelta. And it's, yeah, I don't, I can't choose a favorite really anymore. It's just ankylosaurs. Do you think it's because you can, you know, see it, you know, and more, you know, it's, it's not just bones, but it, it actually looks like, it, like a real dinosaur is laying there, you know, yeah. sleeping. Yeah, it is beautiful. It's my profile picture several places. is like mm. me sitting in front of it. I like squeezed over by it. I was like, Sabrina, take a picture of me like it's a celebrity, you know, like yeah. I need a picture with the notosaur. <laughs> it's mainly, I think, the tail and the clubs that you like. Yeah, but I mean, that's a notosaur, so it doesn't have one. And that part's True. not even preserved. But the, the armor is still amazing. And it's all in situ there. So you can see where all the bony plates were. You can even see the little vertebra mm-hmm. sticking up through the back of it. And it's, yeah. Gut contents too, Yeah, right? they just published the gut contents of yeah. it so they can tell it was eating in what was probably a recently burned down forest. And then ferns have popped up and it swooped in to eat all the ferns. A lot of bits of charcoal, <laughs> yeah. Which, I love yeah. learning about gut contents. The stories <laughs> that the fossils tell are probably my favorite thing overall. Which is just amazing. The, the things you can learn about these dinosaurs just from one snapshot of mostly bone. Yeah. For, For sure. me too, yeah. it's the, the impact that dinosaurs have. One of our earliest interviews was with Anthony J. Martin, and he had written a book recently at the time called Dinosaurs Without Bones, and there's a chapter in there about how, I want to say it was in Australia, sauropods, they migrated, and they're so big that they ended up shaping the landscape, and you can still see how they shaped the landscape today. Like just by walking like glaciers. Yeah. Gouging out canyons. <laughs> That's that's some weird. This all all the trace evidence stuff is like pretty crazy. I mean, anytime you see one of those big trackways or something, we've been able to go to a couple recently. 
and just mm -hmm. like this, there's such a, an immediacy to it, you know, just like this is an individual more where you can see like, oh, they, here's a step and here's like another step and this one they kind of slipped and like, you know, this one <laughs> their, their foot got a little more stuck in the mud or whatever. Looks like it just happened. Yeah, it does. It's hard to believe really how old it is when you see it. And what you could tell from it too, like, um, was it there's a piece of tyrannosaur marks that you can tell that it did some kind of mating dance or something. Oh, yeah, the lecking <laughs> yeah, scrape yeah. marks. Yeah. <laughs> and then they built exhibits around this where you can dance alongside an animated T Rex or something and see who does it better. <laughs> there's no shortage of interest in dinosaurs. I mean, that's that's what we keep discovering. And, and as you said, 300 episodes, there's no shortage of information mm -hmm. about dinosaurs. And I mean, what, is, what does the future look like? Where do you guys want to take this podcast? You want to just keep doing it the way it is? Or do you have some, some other plans in mind? We've written some books. I have a background in book publishing. So I'm, and I very much like writing. So uh, being able to write stories around these things, it's been great. I like doing video game streams because I like playing video games and mm. why not stream it? <laughs> but yeah, the podcast keeps us so busy that sometimes it's hard to think of what else. No, I'd <laughs> say we're open to whatever. Like It's opened yeah. up a lot of really cool opportunities. Like we've gone into some uh, middle school classrooms and answered questions. Mm. We're going to be a guest speaker at a college actually. And last year, because we go to SVP every year, we get to travel and meet a ton of people. And last year, it worked out that we got to go to Brisbane for SVP in Australia. And then we spent a month basically road tripping across the outback. And we wow. got to visit a bunch of the museums that are in some of the most remote areas I've ever been. Like one town is a town of 30 people. And they have an incredible museum because there's all these fossils that are um, a lot of interest is growing in these areas and they're getting a lot of volunteers and they're finding so much and they're actually uh, I think three of the museums we visited are all on track to build these new incredible spaces because yeah, they're they all expanding. they're all expanding <laughs> because they have so much to show <laughs> yeah and so much more they need to store too yeah yeah I guess that's our dream dream is to one day open a dinosaur museum because there isn't really one in the bay area that would be the ultimate thing but that is a lofty dream at this point. <laughs> we just need a nice big building to put some of that UCMP stuff in. Yeah, yeah. that's it would, true. It would look so nice. <laughs> Every time I read a paper and it's like, this fossil and it has the UCMP number to go with it, I think like, how come I can't see this? <laughs> Why is it hiding in a it's, collection? This is such an important and in awesome there. Thing. Just yeah. for people who don't know what UCMP is, James, will you give a, a quick little oh, description yeah. and then also tell them about Campanile Tower. I'm not sure if they know about that. Okay. That's a really funny story. So the UCMP is the uh, the University of California Museum of Paleontology that is, that is UC Berkeley's museum um, and was the essentially the California Museum of Paleontology for, for a couple decades, I think. It and LA are the, the major ones, and there's a bunch more that have popped up over the years, like San Diego and, and you know, uh, Riverside and all that. The, at the, the UCMP, there is a little display component. There's like two floors and a T-Rex and a Pteranodon. But other than that, there's just this like endless research hole. I think they're like just over a million or something like that wow. with, with the amount of pieces they have there, including in the big clock tower uh, in the middle of campus, there's a uh, like a couple floors worth of early La Brea tar pits fossils mm -hmm. that have been just sort of shoved in there from when they were originally taking stuff out in like the 1910s and from about 1910 oh, wow. to like 19 1930ish, whenever the the LA museum opened, um, they were just like, ah, send it up there, and it's, you know, put it. We'll figure out what to do with it later. <laughs> And then they didn't have enough collection space in the life sciences building, so now a lot of it's up in this tower. And um, isn't that bizarre that the tower at Berkeley is basically a storage facility? Wow, I had oh, no idea. Fossils? <laughs> I know. I can't. I don't see it the same way. Every time I see it now, just the thought yeah. of it being full of of fossils is really funny. Yeah, that's really cool. We've been to the top of that tower on Cal Day. But I don't, I don't remember seeing all the stuff. I didn't know I you was screaming by all the dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah. 
Some of those excavation stories are crazy too. Yeah. (laughs) Or the stories about this has been sitting on a shelf for 120 years. Yeah. Somebody decided (laughs) to open it and they found a new dinosaur inside, which actually happens all the time. (laughs) Pegamastix was the weirdest one for that for me. It was just like this, this wacko heterodontosaurid, I think from from africa and the whole thing was just like yeah, this guy opened a box one day that had been like for a hundred years just sitting somewhere and was like wait a minute this looks different and that's the paper like <laughs> there you go new dinosaur bam it's just a very interesting process as we kind of wrap up you know we always like to go out and asking people like why dinosaurs why do you like them why do you why do you think people like them? Why do you have so many listeners? Like, what is it about dinosaurs? It's a good question. I think, well, dinosaurs, they lived so long. You've probably talked to people and heard, like, one of my favorite fun facts I like to tell people who aren't necessarily as familiar with dinosaurs is the time between when Stegosaurus and T-Rex lived is actually longer than the time between T-Rex and us. And during that time, they had a lot of time to turn into such weird animals. <laughs> like you were saying, uh, Mononychus, any kind of Therizinosaur is just amazingly strange. <laughs> the fact that sauropods could get so giant and still be able to walk on land and just spend all day eating and the different feeding strategies, it's amazing. And so I think it's kind of like there's a dinosaur for everyone at different shapes, sizes, how it lived, behaved, all that stuff. We see a lot of stories of dinosaurs bringing communities together in different ways, whether it's like somebody made a dinosaur statue in a town and some bad weather kind of hurt it. And then there was a town recently, actually, they spent an entire day to fix this dinosaur that somebody had installed as a prank 10 years ago. Or in Australia, actually, with the droughts and everything, um, they had a lot of dinosaurs and being able to prepare the fossils at some of the museums we talked about gave people work to do and were able to build these relationships while also learning about these amazing creatures. What about you, Garrett? Well, as Sabrina was saying that, I was reminded that, you know, the word dinosaur means terrific lizard and terrific in like an awe-inspiring way. And yeah, that's really, that's the main thing is that they're just such amazing creatures. But on top of that, really, when you're talking about animals in general and what animals exist and that are impressive and everything usually people are excited about megafauna you like the really big animals usually today it means mammals because they're the biggest things but if you go before the age of mammals the only other big terrestrial animals are dinosaurs there's just there's the age of dinosaurs on land then there's the age of mammals and that's that's it it's just us (laughs) and there's a lot of connections too between how mammals evolved and how dinosaurs evolved and we filled all the same niches and everything so it's really fascinating to look at them and the same kind of people I think that are interested in like polar bears and tigers and whales and dolphins and all that. There are dinosaurs that are similar to most of these animals. In most cases, in my opinion, at least most of the dinosaurs are a lot cooler than some of the mammals are because they're, they're just like another, (laughs) but they're another, they're more extreme, right? Because it's, if you like crazy hyper predators what could be more impressive than a t-rex something that can crunch through bone and has a skull that's five feet long and just massive <laughs> the most hyper predator you can ever imagine if you like big herbivores like an elephant a sauropod is just like 10 elephants yeah so it's all like if you have a favorite animal then there's a dinosaur that's that thing you like but even more of it there's also so much we don't yet know about dinosaurs and so it's just fun to think about and hypothesize what weird behaviors, especially if you look at some of the crazy things that birds do. And you can see, you can see in the way that they walk or um, even just looking at like their feet and stuff, like you can see the dinosaur in them. And then if you just extrapolate like a crow, uh, how crows hold grudges, like (laughs) could non-avian dinosaurs have held grudges? Maybe. (laughs) And then scale a crow up a thousand X or 10,000 X in size. Yeah. And it gives you a different kind of fear that. <laughs> yes. It's a, it's a lot. They don't need to roar Absolutely. to be terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And, thank you. Uh, yeah. We'll have to find a little P 
piece of that to fit into our project. Thanks again, Tony and James, for interviewing us. Yeah. (laughs) Weird to say. That was fun. (laughs) I'm definitely more used to being the interviewer, not the interviewee. I do prefer being the interviewee, though. Oh, I prefer the interviewer. So it works out. But yeah, thank you again for flipping the table on us and also for sharing more about why dinosaurs, which again, we're very excited to see. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Arkansaurus, which was a request from Elrex via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. Arkansaurus was an ornithomimosaur theropod that lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now Arkansas in the U.S. Maybe you guessed that from its name. <laughs> yeah. It was in the Trinity group. Arkansaurus is probably closely related to Ned Colbertia, an ornithomimosaur found in Utah, and it's estimated to be between 6 and 15 feet or 1.8 and 4.6 meters tall. Arkansaurus was bipedal, it had a long neck and it was slender and it had a small head and it may have had teeth in the front part of its jaw. Yeah, since it's an ornithomimosaur, I always think ostrich. Yes. Really ostrichy. It was probably a swift hunter, too, that went after small animals and insects and eggs. So that's just ostriches of my nightmares, not real ostriches. <laughs> right. But it may have also eaten fruit and leaves. Arkansas had a small skull for its body, but it had a relatively large brain. And it had long arms and probably three fingers on each hand. It could probably grasp with its hands, but Oof. yeah, well, we'd need more fossils to know for sure. We do know, however, that the foot claws had strong curvature which is unusual because usually it's flat with ornithomimosaurs. Yeah, that's true because flat claws are the ones you expect if something's running around. And that's how we always see ornithomimosaurs. Mm-hmm. The curved claws are more for useful, like grabbing things. And that's a weird move. <laughs> yes. Suppose if it's hunting and using its feet, that might make sense. Yeah. And so I should say the only thing that's been found of Arkansas is its nearly complete right foot. So we, that's why we know for sure about the strong curvature. But fortunately, ornithomimosaurs have some pretty unique feet, so we could assign it to that group without finding any other rest of the body. Right. But this other description had come from the Arkansas Geological Survey in terms of, you know, probably a swift hunter, small skull, all those sorts of things. Gotcha. So Arkansas was more primitive than Asian ornithomimosaurs that lived around the same time. In 1993, Jim Kirkland found the arms and legs of an unknown theropod that lived in the early Cretaceous in what's now Utah. And he thought that they were closely related to Ornithomimus, but the hands were too primitive. And the ankle, though, was nearly identical to Ornitholestes. Then in 1995, Jim Kirkland looked at the holotype of Arkansas, which had been found in the 1970s, and he saw that it was similar to this other ankle, but Arkansas was larger. Because they were similar, it might mean that Arkansas was more closely related to Ornitholestes instead of Ornithomimus. And if that was the case, Arkansas may have been a carnivore with teeth. But we don't think the leg and arm that Jim Kirkland found was from an Arkansas? As far as I know, that's an unknown theropod. Okay. Arkansas lived along the shore. And at the time that Arkansas lived, there was the Western Interior Seaway that was dividing the continent. So Not much is known about other dinosaurs that lived in the same area. Arkansas is the only dinosaur known so far from Arkansas. Ornithomimosaur tracks from around the same time that Arkansas lived have been found near Moab, Utah at the Mill Canyon Dinosaur Track Site. The type species of Arkansas is Arkansas fridei, 
and the genus name means Arkansas lizard. So Joe B. Friday, the owner of a service station in Locksburg, Arkansas, saw some vultures circling, and this is back in August of 1972, and he went to check on his cows, and he saw some exposed fossils near the road where some gravel had been moved recently for reconstructing Arkansas Highway 24. So he excavated the fossils, the foot fossils, and put them on display at his service station for hmm. months. No one realized they were dinosaur fossils. Eventually, geology professor Doy Zachary Jr. took the fossils to his colleague, James H. Quinn, at the University of Arkansas, and Quinn realized that these were dinosaur fossils, so he prepared them. He took the fossils to be examined in Lincoln, Nebraska in 1972, and scientists there thought that it was related to Ornithomimus. But now, of course, we're thinking maybe it was more closely related to Ornitholestes. So that would put it outside of Ornithomimosauria, but just slightly. Yes, but I wonder if there's still debate over this, because the last I could find was in the 90s. So anyway, Quinn presented the fossils the next year in 1973 at the Geological Society of America meeting in Little Rock, Arkansas. And James Quinn and Benjamin Clarity from the Arkansas Geological Commission went to the site where the fossils were found. This is in March of 1973, hoping to find more fossils, because again, we just have the foot fossils. But the site was now a pit dug up for road construction, so all they found was a toe bone. A little more of the foot. It's possible the bones were scattered either when it was buried or during the road construction. So the fossils that have been found of Arkansas are three metatarsals, four phalanges, three claws, and that makes a nearly complete right foot and the toe. That's not too bad. Mm-hmm. Quinn had meant to name the dinosaur Arkansas Friday Eye, but then in 1977, he had a fatal fall when looking for fossils in Nebraska. Oh, no. Yes. Uh, the name Arkansas was used in a pop science book in 1983, but it was a nomum nudum, not officially described. And it wasn't until 2018 that it was officially named by Rebecca Hunt Foster. Arkansas became the official state dinosaur of Arkansas one year before it was officially named, so in 2017. It was approved by the governor on February 17th. And it was a high school student, Mason Ari, who had the idea to make Arkansas the official state dinosaur, partly because other states like Oklahoma, Texas, and Missouri had state dinosaurs. So he worked on this proposal for three years and drafted the legislation himself. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. And in an inverse article, Mason Ari said, quote, it's the only dinosaur that truly bleeds razorback red. <laughs> <laughs> that's very Arkansas-y. Yeah. So four casts have been made. One was given to the Friday family, one went to the University of Arkansas, one went to the Arkansas Geological Commission, and one went to the Arkansas Museum of Science and Natural History. And you can see the cast in a classroom in Ozark Hall at the University of Arkansas. And you can see a cast and a statue of Arkansas at the Arkansas Museum of Science and Natural History. And the original fossils are now at the University of Arkansas Museum Collections. It's nice when states get their first dinosaur discovered and named. Definitely. And our fun fact this week, I hesitate to even call a fact because I'm going really far into the rabbit hole that I'm not super familiar with. So I apologize if I, I go far too far into conjecture land. And if you know more about what I'm talking about, please send me a message so we can talk more about it and I can learn more about this. But this is the state of the science that I could find from a few hours of research into different peer review articles. So hopefully I don't embarrass myself too much. But basically what we're looking at is a look into dinosaur societies and what we could tell about how they interacted with each other and like what they did during their life cycles. And to that end, if dinosaurs are like birds, they were probably monogamous and the females probably ventured far from their home to find a mate. Hmm. So this is based on the studies of Philopatry and Philo is for loving and Patra is for fatherland. So the full term basically means animals that love their fatherland. Mm. <laughs> it's kind of a weird concept, mm -hmm. but usually what it refers to is animals that return to their birthplace in order to mate. So that's like those titanosaurs we were talking about where there's several layers of nesting sites. We assume that they were philopatric and they were coming back to their original nesting site and then laying more eggs later. Some animals do this every single year, but there are also some other uses of philopatry that some people use. So it can be used to describe other types of movement as well. 
meaning like migration or parental care or gathering for protection. That's a wide variety. Yeah, you can basically just think of it as the opposite of dispersal. So if there's an, an animal that's dispersing all over the place, that's the opposite of something that's philopatric, that's coming back to the same place or staying near where it's originally from. So that I tend to think it's easier to just talk about dispersal and not dispersing. But in any event, it can be more complicated because sometimes philopatry can take several generations. And the best example of that, I think, is monarch butterflies because they only live two months, but they have to fly thousands of miles. It actually takes four generations to make the full journey of philopatry. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's crazy. And they're like, how do these butterflies even know where they're going? They always end up in the same places. It's pretty amazing. Interestingly, though, and maybe most relevant to this discussion, is that there are big sex differences with philopatry. So the presumption is that it helps with genetic diversity if one sex disperses while the other one stays put, or at least, you know, there's more mixing between more genetically diverse individuals. In mammals, males tend to mate farther away from where they were born, is how you describe that. So it's sort of like in humans, like the rambling man there were like all these songs about that in the 50s where like guys just like going out into the world and you know oh sowing their oats kind of thing yeah kind of or just like settling down and somewhere far from where they're originally from oh i see yeah lots of people do that today yes but in, in humans it's like really kind of a bad comparison to use with humans because we're really complicated and weird so we do all sorts of things that aren't strictly because of genetic pressures hmm. In birds, it's the exact opposite. There's a strong female-biased philopatry. So the females tend to mate farther from where they were born, and the males tend to mate near where they were originally from. There's a really popular paper by Greenwood from 1980 that found that this mammal-bird dichotomy held in about 90% of his sample. So in other words, like 90% of the mammals had the male tend to disperse, whereas 90% of the birds, the females, were far from where they were originally born. But to me, the most interesting feature to this is what that sort of behavior about being the one that's dispersing imparts into the sort of societal or like social structure of these animals. It's pretty interesting. So one of the interesting correlations is whether or not the animals are monogamous or polygamous. So in mammals, they're mostly polygamous, but they have that male dispersal, whereas in birds, they're mostly monogamous, but they have the female dispersal. So maybe there's a relationship there between how they spread and whether or not they have multiple mates. There is an interesting complicating factor though, and that's resource defense. And what that is, it's usually defined as a male focusing on controlling a territory and therefore a female has to venture out in order to find that male because obviously the male can't wander around looking for a mate if he's focused on controlling a territory. Hmm. I'm not sure why they specified that it's a male controlling the territory. I'm guessing it's because in a lot of modern animals, the males are the larger animals. So it makes me wonder in dinosaurs, if the females were larger, then would they be the ones controlling the territory? And then maybe you'd have the males dispersing to find these females that are dominating the territory. Yeah. Maybe that happened with T-Rex. Yeah, exactly. And then to me, that made me wonder like, well, does that mean that they're going to be monogamous or polygamous? Apparently, resource defense strategists are often monogamous. And I guess that's because it's maybe more happenstance of them running into each other. And it's kind of dangerous when you're dispersing. So it's unlikely that a whole bunch of them are going to disperse to the same spot or something. I don't know. But it might give us some indication of how different animals behaved. Another complication is something called mate defense. And this usually what we see is with males where they compete for a whole group of mates rather than for territory. Obviously, in this case, they're mainly polygamous because if you're competing to get a mate, it's kind of an easy extension to compete to get extra mates. And this ends up being a situation where like lions or something where it's one male lion with a bunch of female lions. And obviously, in this case, the males are the ones that have to disperse because they have to go find these females and then they're not focused on the territory. So it's a, they're not locked down to the one spot. A more recent paper showed philopatric birds survive better than those that disperse. In other words, female birds have a higher mortality rate because they have to explore out and try to find their males to mate with, which makes a lot of sense. In terms of sort of a social structure, 
and I should maybe not even call it a social structure, but it's sort of like a, a behavior of how things happen over generations. Monogamous animals correlate to a patrilineal structure, and this means that the males may inherit the territory and the females usually leave their birthplace. Interesting. Yeah. On the other hand, polygamous animals correlate with a matrilineal social structure, and the males usually leave their birthplace, and then I guess the females are the ones that control some other elements of things, or at least it's their genetic line that follows close to where they are located. And then one final complication is that pair bonding fosters cooperation, as they describe it. So animals that are monogamous tend to get along better, I guess, in groups, or at least that's according to some anthropologists. I couldn't find that so much in the animal kingdom. So I'm not sure if that would apply to like, if you had paired off T-Rexes, would they get along with each other? Or maybe not? I don't know. So what could we tease apart from fossils based on all of this? Unfortunately, we still don't have any widely accepted sexual dimorphism, meaning being able to tell the difference between a female and a male skeleton. So it's really hard to make these sort of connections between where the females and the males are. But it seems that they are reusing nests like that group of titanosaurs. So there's probably some level of philopatry, but we don't know if it's the males going back to their nesting site or if it's the females going back to their original nesting site. And it's obviously very hard to tease that apart. There are some animals that don't go back to the same nesting site, and it could just be a convenient place for titanosaurs to go. So different ones end up there over time. Or it could be a lot of the same. Sometimes, I think with waterfowl, there will be a lot of not so much spreading out <laughs> like there's more overall philopatry so it relies on just like individuals occasionally splitting off to other groups to get that genetic diversity we might be able to though i surmise be able to figure out if dinosaurs were monogamous and that would be if you could find that there were males we'd have to figure out which skeletons were males and if they were guarding the nest that might support that they were monogamous like modern birds because that's what we see with modern birds. Since they're monogamous, they have both the male and female around to guard the nest. And usually if one animal is going to guard the nest, it's going to be the female because it's the one laying the eggs. Unless they're monogamous, maybe the male would be around. Mm -hmm. Like penguins. Yeah, exactly. And so if we can find basically the best way to figure out how dinosaurs behave is if they're just like birds in a whole bunch of other ways. So if they appear to be monogamous and appear to be like the male is really involved with this nesting behavior, then maybe we could extrapolate that to some other behaviors that are similar to modern birds. Yeah, that'd be really interesting. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And join our community, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.